So we're moving at a rapid pace through Ephesians, as is our custom. We're still in chapter 1. Let me remind you that the first three chapters, really Paul is expounding on the indicatives of our faith. This is who you are. He's reminding the Ephesians and therefore us. This is what is true of you, true of God. This is the gospel. That's the first half. The second half is the imperatives. So then, because of that, in light of that, and who God is, what He has done, what He has promised, and who you are, here's how you live. And there's some powerful things there that we'll glean and we're drawing and linking the, the do, uh, connecting the dots and linking, weaving the pages together a little bit as we begin this study. But let's remember that as we approach it and primarily stay in one portion. This was meant to be a letter read in its entirety to the church and received that way, which is why I've encouraged you to read the entirety of the Ephesians once a week as a part of your regular reading, just so you capture both. If you just draw out Verses out of the back half, uh, powerful applications, but uh, uh, taken out of context from the first half, it may just be another weight of things we must do. We must keep in mind who we are. And so with that as a little broad overview, especially for those that are newer to our study in Ephesians, we can now dive into Ephesians chapter 1. And just a few verses, a part of this great run-on sentence by Paul that is really verses 3 through 14. We come to the end of this long run-on sentence and focus in on the promised Holy Spirit today. Very timely for us. In, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." Imagine for a moment $96,000 being deposited into your bank account. Just for a moment, not too long. For Russell Wilson of the Seattle Seahawks, that's not an imagination, that's a reality. Three weeks ago, he signed the richest contract in NFL history, and he now earns $96,000 a day. Most of us can't even imagine, fair to say none of us will ever know that experience. Many of us know, on the flip side, what it feels like to be $96,000 or more in debt. Do you remember the story that Jesus told about the man who had accumulated such a massive debt against the king that he could not pay it? Matthew 18 The equivalent of millions, 10,000 talents, meant to indicate an unpayable debt. The king was going to imprison him and his whole family and then sell them in order to recoup whatever he could. But this man went and begged before the king. The king was stirred and moved. 
and in mercy and compassion canceled the debt. Forgiven. Every one of us has accumulated an unpayable debt against God our King. To use Paul's words, because of His lavish grace, His rich mercy, we have redemption. We have been reconciled, just as that king reconciled accounts. That's an accounting term, right? Reconciled. Now the debt is, is canceled. Your balance is, is firm. We have been reconciled through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our debt, according to the riches of His grace. Blood, in God's economy, trumps gold and silver and precious gems. Blood means life. And so a life was given. A debt was satisfied. When our life was the only thing that could possibly bring any form of repayment to the debt, Christ died for us, His life in our place, that our debt would be canceled. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1.18 says, you were ransomed then, right? You were bought back, you were redeemed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, which is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. It's incredible. This is humbling. It is life-changing. It is worship-inspiring. This is the gospel We had no hope of climbing out of that debt hole that we were in. We couldn't even afford the interest payment. But God, out of His riches, His love, His mercy, has canceled our debt. He has reconciled accounts. But even more, He has paid our debt. Someone has to pay And God paid through the blood of His one and only Son. We did nothing to deserve it. We can do nothing to earn it or prove that we were worthy of it. We must only receive it to the praise of His glory. What God wants from us in response to His lavish grace and mercy is not repayment or effort to repay. It is praise. A response of praise. Three times in this opening chapter in Ephesians, Paul says, to the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. To the praise of His glory. That's the response. And so we have a moment to do that in response to this word Today, that's why we respond with praise, prayers sung, thanksgivings brought to Him. The right response to the reminder or the revelation of what God has done for us. To the praise of His glory. But wait, there's more. And no, this isn't a gimmicky late night infomercial. Paul is proclaiming that not only has God reconciled accounts and paid our debt, He has deposited into our account 
The, the balances have been totally reversed. Greater than any Russell Wilson-sized deposit, just as God paid our debt personally, He now has deposited into our account personally with His very person, the promised Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is deposited into our account. The balance has been totally reversed. This is what Paul says in verse 13 and 14 of chapter 1. I'm going to read it from the beloved 1984 NIV. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in Him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of of His glory. Our account is not only reconciled from the massive debt that we owed, we are now rich beyond our wildest imagination. That's what Paul will say in chapter 3 when he's praying for the Ephesians. Now to Him who is able to do so much more than we could ask or imagine according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Our world is longing for and striving after riches and power. This is where we began this series. Maybe a subtitle of it would be Riches and Power, or Rich and Powerful, God's Way. Our world is longing for, striving after riches and power. And Paul wants us who believe in Christ to know that we are already both. We who were poor and weak are now rich and powerful because of what God has done through Christ. And because we are now filled with the deposit of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees the promises of what is yet to come, that for eternity we will have no want or lack. Blessed be, verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The greatest spiritual blessing of all is Himself, His very person, His presence with us, His power toward us. The promised Holy Spirit has been poured out, has been given in full, visible, manifest evidence on the day of Pentecost. But now, Paul says, to everyone who has believed, there's a Pentecost moment that happens in your very self, in your soul. The promised Holy Spirit We've sung it this morning, come Holy Spirit, come. Really joining with a chorus of God's people for millennia. And certainly when Paul says the promised Holy Spirit, he's capturing what promise? Well, many, but probably a couple primarily in the Old Testament that promise the coming of the Spirit. The prophet Ezekiel in chapter 36 verse 27 says, through, this is God speaking through Ezekiel, and I will pour out my Spirit within you, 
and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, only through the power of the Spirit can we thus live. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. One of the most common promises and refrains throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. How about the prophet Joel? Chapter 2, verse 28. This is quoted in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. And it shall come to pass after that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit has come. He was poured out on that day at Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2, but now He dwells in all peoples who believe. Just as Jesus Himself promised in John chapter 7. One of the most powerful short sermons He ever preached on this great, day, this great feast day where there was this water carrying and pouring ritual Jesus stood up and proclaimed a powerful sermon. And as a part of that sermon, John chapter 7, verse 38, he said, Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John adds this, he says, Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Those who believe are indwelt with the Spirit to overflowing. That's Jesus' promise. And Paul is simply capturing that in this great eulogy of Ephesians chapter 1. The source of all power, the owner of all things, indwells in us, in, in you, in me, but we are but jars of clay. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This theme of tabernacle, temple, runs all the way through the arc of God's redemptive story. The tabernacle in the Old Testament was the place literally that God inhabited and dwelt with His people. When Jesus came, John the Apostle said, He has now come, He has tabernacled, literally, with His people. He is the new tabernacle, the new dwelling of the Holy Spirit on earth. Now that Jesus has ascended, and Jesus said, it is better that I go, because if I go, then the Holy Spirit will come and fill all peoples and keep Him with the promise of the Old Testament. Those prophets who knew, and this dwelling now inhabits the church, the bride as a whole, collectively, and even as individuals. We are being built into a dwelling place. That's the people. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians, am I jumping out of order? 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body, this is now an individual promise, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The Holy Spirit indwells within us, just as was promised. Let's come back to this idea of deposit, the guarantee of our inheritance, and be very grateful that let's come back to this idea of Russell Wilson and his extravagant wealth. When he signed the contract, it came with a $65 million signing bonus. That is one deposit. 
just <laughs> I'm good job Russell for holding out just scraped by a 65 million dollar deposit into his bank account and that was simply a guarantee of the contract signed that the rest would come again none of us can possibly fathom this But when Paul says the Holy Spirit is a deposit, the balances have been totally reversed of all of the promises that are yet to come, that are ours in Christ at the day of redemption. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 30. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. All those who believe in Christ... Everyone, not after you have proved worth, not after you have been a follower for X number of years, or after you have given and served, all who believe are given that same massive deposit, greater than any earthly thing. I remember when I first heard these words from the NIV that we were given the seal, the Holy Spirit was like a seal. What do you think came to my second grade mind? I don't know if I want the Holy Spirit if he's some form of marine mammal that eats fish. But if that's the comparison, then I'm in. You know, I think seal are a little bit unpredictable, a little bit wild. It'd be an interesting pet to have around. I'll tell you what, your life would not be the same. So bring it. But that is not the kind of seal that is clearly being talked about. Think of a a wax seal on a a document, a contract from the king. And the king would have a unique signet ring that he would press into that soft wax and seal as his full authority, his full word, his full promise. That's what Paul is indicating. This is the seal we are marked with. But that word in the Greek is also used for the branding of animals that ranchers or farmers would brand their animals, burn into their skin. It was also used for the branding of slaves in that day. And I guess with that thought, we are but sheep and slaves. We are God's possession to the praise of His glory. He has marked us, branded us. And while ours is spiritual and these other analogies are external, we should rightly say, but what then is visible in our own life? If we have been marked with the seal, is it not known and seen? More on that in a moment. When the Holy Spirit indwells us, He is the guarantee of the promises yet to come, the guarantee of our salvation, of our resurrection with Christ, of every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, our future hope. But this deposit, that word deposit in the Greek can also be translated earnest. I don't know how often we use that word except for maybe in the purchase of property. Earnest money, you pay a money that is supposed to be a sign of faithfulness to come through with the promised payment. And certainly we are God's possession. His, if the Holy Spirit is His earnest promise in us that He will be faithful, 
that his contract could never be broken. His word will never be broken. In Greece today, the same Greek word is synonymous with engagement, which often comes with a ring, doesn't it? A sign of the promise of what is yet to come, of the vows that will be proclaimed. And so I'll use any or all of those images. It's a rich word and picture of what God has done and is promising to deliver on His, our future hope, the day of redemption. But wait, there's more. It's not only our future hope, it's our present power. We are not poor, we are rich. We are not weak, we are powerful. His power at work within us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. Do we know it? Do we live like it? Is it visible and evident in our lives? Because Paul prays in this next section that we'll get to, Lord willing, next week, this first prayer in chapter 1. He prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would know, it's both a a knowledge and an experience of the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us believe who believe the same power that rose Jesus from the grave. Paul couldn't have drawn from a greater example. The person of power is the Holy Spirit. It is our present power. What this promise means. Not just our future hope A.W. Tozer, a famous Alliance pastor and theologian, he said, no other subject could be more crucial to the church today than the Holy Spirit. I know nothing that inspires me more than meditating on the Scriptures concerning this third person of the Trinity. And certainly, A.W., amongst countless others, have meditated on these promises from the Apostle Paul for the last 2,000 years. Could there be any subject more crucial to the church today. He argues that we would meditate upon these promises, shake our head at their majesty, be stirred by what they mean for us. And if this this powerful person is at work within us, this one who we're told in the very beginning, the Holy Spirit was hovering over the deep, over the waters, before life was brought forth. The very Holy Spirit, the very same one hovering over the grave, the tomb, before Jesus' life was brought forth. This same Holy Spirit now more than hovers over us, His church, or you, His son, His daughter. He is indwelling in you, at work, through you, this very same one. What does that mean? And we would be here all day just trying to get a grasp of the depth of what that means. But with that picture in mind, here's at least one thing that it does mean. What is dead within us can be brought to life. What is laying dormant can be awoken. What is broken can be renewed and restored. Paul catches up with this imagery in chapter 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, but now 
because of God's rich mercy, his great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, we have been made alive with Christ. Paul would say in Galatians, I've been crucified with Christ. There's no longer I who live now, but Christ who lives in me. I died that I might live. What is dead within us, what is lying dormant, what needs to be awoken. This was like center verse, Ephesians chapter 5, 14. For the, the men, and continues to be as we wake up at 6, 5.30 in the morning to be here for study at 6.30 on Thursdays, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. What is dead within us or lying dormant in us must be awoken, and to the power of the Holy Spirit we have hope that it can be. What is dead in your life that needs to come alive? What is the work that the Holy Spirit primarily wants to do in evidence that it would be visible, that that mark upon us would be seen in a world that otherwise cannot see Him? Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The very work, the fruit of the Spirit at work in us that is the evidence of Him transforming us for many of us lies dormant or dead. Lord, bring life Bring your fruit to bear in my life in every area. Awaken me. Renew me. Restore me. The power of the Holy Spirit is doing this work and longs to bring forth this fruit in our life. So when we don't see those fruits of the Spirit evident, does that mean He's not at work? That He's impotent? That He's left us? No, because the Scripture says, having believed, past tense, you were marked in Him with the Holy Spirit. He is the deposit guaranteeing. It's not the measure of your faith. Have you believed? Have you believed in Jesus Christ, the Son who was sent, who lived and died for you? You bring that smallest amount of faith, that mustard seed of faith, and say, yes, Lord, I believe. And we often pray, Lord, help me with my unbelief. But if you prayed, yes, Lord, I believe. I'm coming to you. Then you are marked with the Holy Spirit. You are indwelt with Him as a deposit for the future promises that He will not leave you nor forsake you, that He will be at work sanctifying you as you also work out your salvation and grow in that process of sanctification. So what then does it mean? I mean, the parallel passage, Paul says in Romans 8, verse 10, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So those parallel passages keeps proclaiming in harmony the gospel. So what then is going on? If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, why is it not more evident? 
<laughs> Do we conclude that he's now impotent? Or is it more likely that we are ignorant? A.W. said, No other subject could be more crucial to the church today than the Holy Spirit. He wrote those words 70 years ago. Has anything changed? Would they have been just as accurate a hundred years after Christ was risen and ascended? But Paul also seems to indicate that we need more and more of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? In chapter 5, verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. What does wine do when you become drunk? It influences mind and thought and body. That's the parallel. Instead, be filled with the Spirit that He would influence mind, soul, body. He's our influence. Be filled with Him. But that word that's translated there is is present active. Be being filled. It's an ongoing action. So what then? Does Does the Holy Spirit leak? I mean, I mean, we are jars of clay, so we are not, our vessels here have likely have some gaps or some holes, or you know, if they, maybe we were broken and patched back together. So I guess it makes sense that he would fill and then we'd leak out and kind of need to just keep being refilled like my neighbor's rain barrel that sits underneath. You know, instead of fixing the gutter, a rain barrel is now underneath it. And maybe we're like that rain barrel, just uh, constantly needing to be refilled and then it leaks out and, I don't know, don't press that analogy, that was a pretty poor jump. (laughs) Be being filled. John Stott says, wherever one looks in the church today, there's an evident need for a deeper work of the Holy Spirit. Do you see what I'm trying to do in the context of reconciliation? How do we reconcile this thought of, we have the Spirit, we've been uh, marked with Him, deposited, He indwells us, God doesn't hold back, so how then do we need more of the Spirit? When Paul prays in um, chapter 3, that you may be filled with all the fullness, that's what he's praying for the church, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So then we're not yet filled with all the fullness of God? I think one of the best ways I've heard this described, just from a slightly different angle, is it's not that we need more of the Spirit. Perhaps God doesn't yet have all of us. And that depends on us. Using the imagery that is used in Revelation of Jesus standing at the door and knocking to be invited in, that He would come in and dwell and fellowship and eat this picture of Jesus, the key holder of every lock, let alone the power to break down any door or any wall, and he even proved after his resurrection he didn't even need that. He could simply come and go as he willed. But that picture of that Jesus, that risen, powerful king, is standing and knocking, awaiting an invitation. If that is a picture of Jesus, then wouldn't it stand to reason that the Holy Spirit is also waiting for an invitation to fill every room of our home as He has been invited in through the simplest amount of faith and we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit? Have we truly invited Him into every area of our life for His presence and His power? Or are there still areas of our life, rooms, if you will, that we would like to still keep off limits. Hey, we're st- 
I'm still at work in that room. I don't want anything rearranged in there. That is my space. Is that our parenting? Our career? Our marriage? Our relationships? Our sex life? Our schedule? Our finances? Is it a wonder that there are rooms, maybe many, in our life that have very little love, joy, and peace if we have not invited the Holy Spirit to have all of it? It's not because we lack the Spirit, because we lack surrender. Our desire is divided. Andrew Murray, great man of faith and intimate walk with Jesus, he said this, the one thing needful for the church and the thing which above all others people ought everywhere to seek for with one accord and with their whole heart is to be filled with the Spirit of God. Yes, we should cry out for more of the Spirit. I don't think that's a wrong way to pray. Prayers we've prayed often, songs that are sung But let us also be praying that we would know him more. As you'll often hear me say or pray, we don't need to say, Jesus, be here, or Holy Spirit, come. We need to pray more accurately, make us aware of your presence, Holy Spirit. As we pray, come, Holy Spirit, come, may it also be we are praying less of us. Help us be empty. Help us surrender that we might be filled, that we might be empowered for what you want to do in and through us. We yield to you. God's people should be known, hear this church, this is you, this is me. We should be known as the richest and most powerful people in this world. And it has nothing to do with our bank account or how many people call us sir or say how high when we say jump. That's not God's economy. The richest and most powerful people in the world and you are them and you know others that model this and you shake your head. They are the people who cannot be shaken by anything. They know who they are. They are sons and daughters of the King. This life is a mist. It is temporary. But the one to come is eternal. And we're on our way. And in the meantime, we have a hope secured. We have the power and presence of the living God with us. When things don't work out according to our plans or our hope, even ones that we've tried to align right with the Lord and yet they crumble, we grieve, we mourn, we wonder, but we are not shaken. The richest and most powerful people in the world have joy in the midst of trials. They have love in the midst of persecution. They have peace in the midst of every storm. They live with freedom, though they would be trapped and imprisoned. That's what makes us rich 
and powerful. Remember that Paul wrote every one of these words while in prison, ultimately awaiting his death. I'll join with Paul and make his words into a question for us as we head into response. Have you not heard the word of truth? The gospel of your salvation? Maybe I'll use a word that I would use with my kids. I hear you, Dad. Yes, but you're not listening. Because you've heard the gospel today. I pray that you would hear it every time you gather. Are you listening? Have you not heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation? Have you not believed? Then you are marked in him with a seal. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Never question it. This morning, be reminded of it. We pray, Lord, renew us again as we come to this table for this insignificant earthly meal, but reminded that it is a powerful spiritual meal that all has been done. We come hungry and thirsty as we have sung for his righteousness. And Jesus said, those that hunger and thirst for my righteousness will be filled. We have come to believe. We are filled with the Spirit. Now, are we aware of areas in our life Maybe you just work on one room today that you know you have not yielded to the Holy Spirit. That door is still closed. And as we come to this table, if we are going to make prayers that say, I'm hungry and I'm thirsty for more of you, fill me, forgive me, Lord. Your life has been given for me then is there one room or one area that we also then need to open access, surrender, control? You've been clinging too tightly to managing and working that out, to reordering things, to getting it clean enough, then you can open the door. Holy Spirit, have rule and reign. I want love and joy and peace and patience and all the rest in all of those areas of my life and it's not happening with me in control. May it be you. Fill me again. Let me end with a statement that I wrote and then preached over a year ago when we began our study in Acts. And as we continue to march toward Pentecost, I believe the Holy Spirit isn't restrained or constricted by dates on a calendar. So Holy Spirit, make it a Pentecost moment for some here today that you would pour out upon us in manifest way that we would know your love and your healing power as we see Jesus more fully. All the Holy Spirit really wants to do is help us to see Jesus more fully. So Holy Spirit, help us as we come to the table. Help us as we sing. Help us as we pour out our heart's cry for all those that are in transition and hardship and difficulty. Give us your peace, your hope, your joy, your love. Fill us with your power, we pray. Here's what I wrote. Perhaps the most important thing we will ever do is to come to believe and to know that the Holy Spirit of God is present and active in our world, in the church, and in our lives, 
And yes, he desires to fill us, to empower us, to come upon us, and to manifest himself to us, not just once, but often, for the glory of Christ and the fulfillment of his mission to be known and worshipped by every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. To him be the glory forever and ever in the church and in Christ Jesus. Amen. Team, come. If you're newer to our body, I've been hinting at it throughout. We respond to God's word. We do so by singing prayers. Some of us love to do that with our voices. And it's a joyful noise. And I encourage you to do that. We join with all of God's people throughout history. Music is a gift. Some of us can't bring ourselves there. Either because God is at work within us and it feels like nothing can come out. That can still be a response as your heart resonates. Remember, the Spirit is the one who translates. Romans 8 says, we often don't even know what to pray. Have you ever tried to pray and like, there's just nothing. The Holy Spirit is taking those groans and translating them to actual words as if God needed words to hear. But he's our, He is our communicator as we have Christ, our mediator. So bring it all, bring it all to, to the Lord. Let this praise bless you or join with it and proclaim these prayers as your own, not just as words that may or may not be familiar. Come to the table. There's elements there in the back. When you are ready, anytime during these few songs as we respond, come empty, come hungry, and ask for the Spirit's help where you cannot do it on your own. If you need prayer today, one-on-one, if you come and sit here, I'll come pray with you or uh, others or part of our prayer team can come and pray with you or you can find me afterward. Just feel like God is really at work and wanting to do even more if we will yield to him to be filled. So let's invite him to do that and let's give in response all the ways that he is asking us to give.